Hi, this is Corp Crandall, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, welcome back to another fantabulous episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for welcoming me. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. How about you? I uh, I had some pretty interesting news that I, I would like to log roll for 15 seconds about. Oh, is it about a an audio project that you're working on or a have worked on? A, a different audio project than the one that I have coming out for Audible. It's for Wondery. Uh, my co-writer and I, Bob DeRosa, wrote an episode of Wondery's new horror anthology called I Hear Fear. And we found out like a day before it was set to record that Carrie Mulligan is the lead in our episode. Awesome. Congratulations, Sarah. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Didn't direct this one. Just wrote it. Didn't get to direct Carrie Mulligan, but uh, I'm very excited to uh, hear it nonetheless. And I'll probably be uh, yakking my face off about it after. So, so everybody uh, who, who listens, you to know, this needs and, to and, if, and if you can't remember Carrie Mulligan, promising young woman. I mean, come on, she's been around the block. She's been in a few things. Drive, yeah, lots yeah. of stuff. Yeah, uh, Oscar nominated. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Carrie Mulligan's. It was just amazing news to hear that, and uh, I can't wait to hear what Wondery does with it. So, uh, for those of you who are keeping an intricate graph of my non-cinematography podcast audio exploits, you got to check out Catchers from Audible on October 27th, and then I believe at the beginning of November, our episode of I Hear Fear. Although I think I Hear Fear uh, will be starting before then. I think we're the final episode. Wow. All right. You are being prolific. Look at you getting it done. Keeping busy. All right. So, Ben, we should talk about who's on the show today. Who's on on the the show, show, Ilya? Tell me who's (laughs) on the show. On the show today is incredible writer, director, Court Crandall. He's got a new movie called Bromates, and uh, I got to talk to him, and and we'll get to that uh, conversation. Not to be confused with bros. Not to be confused with bros. And it's very funny. He also has some cred from being the writer of uh, Old School, if you remember nice. Old School. Yes, yes Court, Court's been around a, a while. We get into a bunch of stuff in, in our conversation. And I don't want to ruin it. But first, up is uh, Close Focus. And I think that I'm just going to yeah, jump you, right in. You kind of yeah. have a bug up your ass this week. Well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so um, some people out there are watching House of the Dragon. They're giving HBO a lot of flack because mm-hmm. of uh, particular decisions that were made by the yep. creative team to do some day for night shooting. You know, the Twitterverse has exploded lately with people criticizing, calling HBO customer service, saying... Your show is breaking my television set. I can't see anything. It's too dark. Even John Oliver on his show this past week made a quip about, you know, you you couldn't see what was going on. And of course, there was this controversy years ago that we talked about. There was an episode that was dark and people complained that they couldn't see what was going on. And let me tell you, at what point is the consumer going to take some shred of responsibility for this? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, I have calibrated my television as best as I can. And the offending episode of Game of Thrones that was overly dark, I have to say, it was very hard for me to follow what was going on. It was an extremely, extremely, extremely dark episode. And I'm not Kazal Atrakshi. I haven't gone and corrected everything that could be corrected, but I have spent time setting my television up so pretty much everything looks pretty good on it. 
except like that was crazy dark. I'm not watching House of the Dragon, so I I can't speak to this one episode. Okay, when you watch television, do you usually have lights on in the room or are you in a completely dark room? Well, I'm a I'm a dork, so I have hue lighting in my house and I kind of have a very muted low light theater mode that goes a little bluish. That's obviously if I'm watching it at night, if I'm watching it in the middle of the day, then uh, obviously uh, life has no meaning and I'm sitting around watching television <laughs> at three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, all right. All right. So, well, I ask because there's a lot of people who have tons of windows open, uh, lights on when they're watching whatever it is. And it might be really hard to see, even if you have your screen calibrated yeah. appropriately, when you let your room be flooded with light. It's impossible for your eyes to you know, be able to adjust. So I ask that question just because ultimately there is a new thing that is coming to televisions called filmmaker mode. Mm-hmm. And actually in about a week, there's an event at the ASC where the tech committees that I sit on are actually going to present a whole demonstration of filmmaker mode. So I will get a real but that, deep. That won't affect, that's not going to affect TVs that are already in people's homes. That's going to be like ones that are being manufactured right now new tvs exactly and and here's the thing the pushback from the public on filmmaker mode is kind of ridiculous to me and it's kind of amazing because it's not really out there in the wild as of yet but people have heard about this and the whole point of the smooth motions and the motion scans and the different things that come pre-installed and turned on and if you stay in certain hotels already turned on with impossible to turn off extra frames that are being added because people are complaining that there's too much judder, there's too much, uh, you know, staccato, the motion doesn't look correct to them. The, the motion of a movie doesn't mm. look like the evening news and they take a personal offense that Hollywood is telling them there is a correct way to watch what it is that, that you are watching. Well, then, now, then set your TV up wrong. Who gives a shit? That's exactly right. Just because filmmaker mode exists doesn't mean that you can't still watch things wrong. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people out there who are going to want to watch it wrong and they're still going to be able to do it. But the good news about filmmaker mode is that there will be one button to turn off all the crap, to turn off Mm. all of that stuff for everyone who actually wants to see what the intention is. And I bring this up specifically because of House of the Dragon. In theory, if you had filmmaker mode, you would have a, a fighting chance of being able to see essentially what the filmmaker intended the way I understand it right now. It won't necessarily be calibrated, Mm. but at least there's not going to be a bunch of extra stuff getting in the way. But I think anyone out there who wants to watch television and actually wants to have some semblance of understanding what it's supposed to look like, you got to take a little bit of responsibility. You got to like, I'm not saying you got to read a book. I'm not saying you have to learn how, you know, your internal combustion engine works in order to drive your car. What I'm saying is, is that you need to just know a little bit about maybe, Hey, if I click, if I press a button or two, then I'll get to see this thing Mm -hmm. versus, you know, Hey, I'm going to put everyone's skin tone to green, which, you know, I've been in people's houses. I've been in my cousin's house. I couldn't believe how she had her TV set set up. Everyone was literally green. Uh, Anyway, I'm getting far afield here. I think the whole point, though, is is that you can't just completely blame the people at the network, the people at your streaming service, your cable provider. You got to take some bit of onus, some bit of like, hey, I want to watch something. I want to enjoy it. You ought to at least try to start from zero. If you can't start from zero, 
I think you give up the right to complain. It's exactly like the people out there who, you know, want to be poll watchers who have never voted in their life. I don't know if you've heard about this, but yeah, I, I'm sorry. If you want to complain about politics, I think you actually have to vote. I think that's that's just sort of like the the minimum, the minimum. Well, I think it's the American to, way to complain about something that you ha- you have no background in and have done nothing to affect one way or the other. I mean, like, look, I mean, feel free, feel free to complain <laughs> about House of the Dragon being too dark. I think if your TV is calibrated properly, those scenes are probably still pretty. If it's like that scene in Game of Thrones, that was unnecessarily dark, in my humble opinion. Well, let me tell you, the scene that people are really complaining about I think they have good reason to complain, not because it's dark, but just because I think it's a poor choice. It's day for night and a scene that doesn't need to be day for night. And they could have done it a different way, but clearly you can do. I mean, George Miller did day for night in Fury Road and it looked amazing. Like it's not hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. It takes a skilled person who's who has good foresight to figure out how to do day for night. This day for night was not the best I've seen. And uh, I agree it wasn't it wasn't in my opinion the best choice would be worse in smooth scan i assume i mean like that's the first thing i do on any television i ever look at is turn that crap off but you know i suppose if you're a sports junkie and you're watching the the super bowl smooth scan maybe looks better i i don't know like it's it's good for something for somebody i don't know i think sports not being shot in 24 frames i i don't think that the smooth motion is really for the sports i think that the sports is already pretty darn smooth uh, I think really it's for converting stuff that was originally what? acquired at 24 frames. But to what make it look if like you're watching news. Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies? Oh my God. I, I, I don't, I, I got, there are people out there who think that's the ultimate and that's the best anything should ever look. James and Cameron I, is one of them. I know. And I don't know how to tell James Cameron and Peter Jackson that they are lone voices in the wilderness and that the whole rest of the world is not coming over to their side of this argument. It'll be interesting. I saw a trailer for uh, the new Avatar movie, and I'm sure I'll see it, and I'm sure it's going to be in high frame rate, and it's like, this is James Cameron's last chance to convince me that this is the way to do it. Anyway. Yeah. Didn't Ang Lee make a movie? Wasn't it Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk or something? It was also yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few people out there who have tried it, but I think that it doesn't stick for them. They don't, they don't keep doing that. It's a very particular aesthetic that most of Hollywood and most of the production world has decided they don't want to embrace. There are the Jim Camerons and the Peter Jacksons out there who think that it's wonderful. So, but that's, uh, but yeah, they're the, the small minority. The small minority of amazing geniuses. Anyway, (laughs) uh, I I think we should go ahead and wrap this up. Yeah, let's get to the interview with Court Crandall. Here it is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Hey, uh, joining me now is Court Crandall, the writer-director of the new movie Bromates. Court, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Elliot. This movie is so much fun. This is a really fun. Okay, uh, I, I take that back. This is a very serious drama. This is no. This is like you, when you're done, you want to commit suicide. No, uh, this this movie is so much fun. Shakespeare. It's it's really fun. But I guess my first question for you is: Is it autobiographical? It is semi-autobiographical, and yet oh it is not. Oh my god! M- I was joking. I didn't think that there's any chance that could be true. Uh, but tell me, how was this movie autobiographical? <laughs> It actually somewhat follows the life of my writing partner, Chris Kemper, who did break up with a girlfriend. That girlfriend did move next door to him, and he did have a bunch of knucklehead friends 
that got into some hijinks. But uh, most of <laughs> it, we kind of made up together. But there is some truth uh, spotted wow. without. And then, and then Chris is also a huge proponent of clean energy and kind of one of the leaders in the world in that area, frankly. So we followed that storyline a little bit. That's awesome. I would not have thought that there was any ring of truth to bromates. I, I thought that this was something that, that sprung from your imagination and it became the story. But I think that that's really fascinating. Was there actually, not trying to give anything away, but was there yeah. actually the following of a girl that took place as well, too, that didn't work out quite as uh, quite as hoped? Not so much. There was more just he, he sort of broke up with this girl. And like I said, you would think it was you know, movie contrivance to have her end up in the apartment next door to you. But that's actually what happened to him, which is particularly <laughs> rough. Yeah, that's that's got to be really tough to to then go home and go out every single day and realize that the person that you loved uh, is right next door and not with you. So exactly. Oh, man. Hey, uh, tell me about the origin of this movie. How did this uh, all come together? I know Snoop Dogg's an executive producer. Uh, I I don't know if he's done that before, but this is kind of amazing. It seems like a, a confluence of a, an incredible cast and a lot of effort to make this come into the world. How did it happen? How did it go? Well, Chris approached me originally because he had seen my credits writing the first couple drafts of the movie Old School, which he was a fan of. And so... He said he had this kind of idea about his life and he shared some of it with me and we got to talking and there were some pieces that we liked, but it didn't really feel like a movie yet. And so the part that I latched on to slash wanted to push was this notion of guys helping each other through relationship recovery. Cause I feel like, you know, we've seen it with women do it a, a few times, but we've never really seen it with guys, maybe the odd couple a little bit, but it was more just about these two kind of very different characters living together, not really trying to help each other through this period of life and doing it in the kind of stupid way only guys of that age would do. So that's where it started. And yeah, Snoop came along. He was pretty late in the process, but he responded positively to the script uh, and his manager uh, did as well. And so they wanted to push his production company, which he's just getting going, uh, you know, in addition to his 1200 other ventures, um, the guy is unbelievable in, in just the sheer number of business ventures he's involved in. And so he got in and, and he doesn't usually play himself really anymore in, in films, but he was, he was willing to do it for us provided, you know, he was also one of the producers and so forth. So that's how he joined. And then the rest was just an exercise in getting the funniest people we could find because we didn't have a studio. Or, or anyone telling us who to use and who not to. We just auditioned and, and went after a lot of what I thought were just top comedic talent, uh, stand-up people. And the result is that they make me a lot, look a lot better than I would otherwise. Because they're just able to, you know, riff and you can say, oh, this isn't really working. Could you try something else? And they come up with stuff that was a lot funnier than what I probably would have written or Chris would have written. Well, I got to say, it really works because uh, there's a lot of jokes and you've got an incredible cast. I'm a big fan of Lil Rel. I think that he's fantastic. And of course, Josh Brenner, maybe most famous from uh, Big Head from Silicon Valley. Uh, but, you know, Rob Riggle, incredible cast. You've just got really, really funny people left and right all over this movie. And 
it's a real art to make a movie that is funny and can really lean into a zany dumb joke and it can really like pull the most laughs out of that and can really turn it into running gags and continue to to call back and bring more stuff forward because and here I'm going to talk very seriously about this which maybe seems crazy but it's when you can really build the layers it's building those layers it's building those callbacks it's getting those talent too to be thinking about their characters and to improv to pull out all those pieces when you're on set how much of that is fun playing around and how much of that is really serious like oh we can add another joke into this we can add another thing what's your process for that well the process was to try and write the funniest script we could more than anything else we just wanted to write a a, a kind of funny movie which is particularly tough these days because you know the world is not emotionally aligned for that to happen um, yeah, especially yeah. a movie about guys acting like jackasses. I think there's plenty of people want to see it. I think it's just, it's just tough to make and sell these days. So we started there. And then as a director, I just had no attachment to the script whatsoever. It was all just about what is going to make the best scene in each case and try and have no ego. And by having, you know, comedic actors who could do a ton of improv, we would usually cover the scene once or so. And then we'd start playing around. The only tough part is you only have so many takes just because, you know, you have to cover everything tight, wide, reverse. And so you can't just ad lib. A lot of people think, you know, you can just wing it. I was telling a friend, I I spoke to Christopher Guest beforehand, who does all his movies with, you know, a 15 page outline and everybody knows their character inside and out. And then they just go and they shoot reams of film and, and figure it out along the way. I half wanted to do that, but just didn't have, you know, the ability to to go that direction, to commit that much to improv. But there's a a good portion of the film that is ad-libbed or they start on script and then they add some little bits and fillers and things like that. Um, So I would urge anybody directing comedy to get funny people who were capable of of making the script stronger or just fuller, because like you said, a lot of the layers, I think, come from the little bits they add. Yeah, I think it's quite the discipline to make a comedy and to give it. I mean, there, there's about a thousand ways that you can make it not work. But exactly like you're talking and uh, I've had some conversations with other people who are making different types of comedy, but that have the improvisational factor. But there's so many ways that that improvisational factor can can kill you in the edit that you doesn't yeah. allow you then to actually tell a coherent story or how can you actually work this joke in because it was so great and seen uh, you know 11a but you you weren't able to make it pay off in scene 152 like you know how do you bring all of those improvisation things together and to know that it's going to work in the cut what is uh, what's your number one guiding light for that the number one guiding light I actually learned from shooting commercials and tons of ESPN stuff is really time management and knowing that what you do in the morning will affect what happens in the rest of the day. So you can't just keep getting an extra take because, uh, let's grab one here because it's going to cost you a take later in the day. So really knowing when to say when, and if people's, you know, sometimes the improv starts to get, I don't want to say sloppy, but it just gets off and, and people are having fun, but that's when you rein it in and say, all right, let's we got this, or let's get back on track to the, to the points we need to make. Because like you said, in the end, story points are probably more important than jokes. Was it a, a long shoot, a short shoot? How long did it take you to, to make this? Five weeks, which 
oh, felt pretty short. Um, yeah, <laughs> there was not a lot. And we also got shut down for a, a brief COVID infraction during that five weeks. But uh, yeah, I have a, a whole new respect for people who are on sets for months at a time. I can't imagine it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, particularly right now, I, I used to ask people when they first came on the show, like, oh, was this a COVID movie? Because there was a, a period of time before where people weren't in, in COVID. But now every movie is a COVID movie. Every movie has the, the same uh, structures that are in place to make sure to try to keep people safe and sane and everything else. I'm glad your shutdown was brief, but uh, that is sort of, I think, the new reality for all productions these days. I mean, those COVID officers are there for a reason. Yeah. And no matter what they do, you can only affect so much. People go home on weekends. People need to, you know, much as you try and keep them in this sector or that sector, they need to go over there to get a roll of gaffer tape or whatever it is. It's, it's tough. Well, when does the movie come out? It comes out on the 7th. Then I think there are more theaters that just came on yesterday, the following weekend. So it should get a pretty decent exposure theatrically in the U.S., which, as you know, is, is tough these days. And I kind of urge anyone to go see anything that isn't a comic book movie, because I feel like if, if you don't now, you probably won't get that opportunity in a year or two. So support anything that is unique. I agree wholeheartedly, uh, as our listeners might be sick of hearing, uh, Ben Rock and I are advocating often to go out and see movies and definitely matinees, all kinds of showtimes that may not necessarily just be Friday or Saturday evening, because uh, it would be really great to keep those institutions around because the big screen experience is the experience. And I think it's great that that your movie is getting that big screen release. So many things these days are uh, also just being made for streaming. And they say, there you go. And that that's the end of the life. But the big screen experience is like nothing else. And uh, I, I think it's always more fun to see a movie that way if you have the option. Especially for comedy. So like we premiered at the Boston Film Festival a couple weekends ago and had, uh, it was a quite a big series. So it was like 500 people. And here, people together in America, laughing is not, that hasn't happened in a while. So whether, you know, for a variety of reasons. You're hundred percent right. And there is a shared experience that is an element that you don't get at home when you're seeing a movie with an audience, just the fact that other people are laughing, or if it's a, something that's terrifying that other people are scared, but that collective experience is, uh, is incredible. Yeah. Uh, so I know we don't have a ton of time, but I want to talk a little bit about what you got going on next. Do you, are you in promo mode entirely for Bromates or uh, is there something new on the horizon that you're working on? I am in promo mode now for this. I do have another comedy script that I, I would like to, to make and hopefully uh, someone will be interested in doing that. And then Chris and I are, are talking about doing a, another film together, which can't really talk about, but it is probably not going to be a comedy. But it's, it's something we think is kind of an interesting subject with an audience for it. I want to get a little bit of your, your life story. How did you get into this crazy business? When did you get the bug? When did you decide this was the thing for you? So I was actually, and still am, in the advertising. I have an ad agency called Positivity. And a few years back, my buddy Tim Kelleher, who is a screenwriter who made the movie First Kid, <laughs> had written the script and he sold it for half a million bucks. And then his brother-in-law at the time was an entertainment lawyer and he got it back and sold it for another half a million dollars. Oh, wow. Um, and so he made a million bucks. And I said, shit, I got to try that. Um, so, uh, 
So, I, so envy, envy is what yeah. got you into it. <laughs> yeah, envy, and, and, envy and American greed. And so I wrote this movie that ultimately became called The Lobster Tale. Uh, I wrote it phonetically about a lobsterman in Maine, and I knew the people of Maine pretty pretty well, who was losing everything because he didn't want more from his life. And so it, I just read the book Bastard Out of Carolina and watched Fargo, and I thought, well, the Maine accent's the next one to lampoon. And so I wrote that. It looked like it was going to get made very quickly. Uh, Harold Ramis's company was interested in it and stuff. And then 10 years later, it did get made. <laughs> um, and so I've always just kind of done it on the side, which is great because at least you're not depending on it to pay your mortgage and you're not kind of desperate and you can do the things you want to do and sort of live on your own terms. Well, it sounds to me like you are very much the overnight success story, 10 years in the making. That's, that's incredible. So that's a, oh, yeah. what, what oh, I, uh, more than yeah. 10 is probably, and then it was another 10 from that. Um, so. Well, Court, I know you've got to get to your next thing, but thank you very much for your time today. This is uh, so much fun to, to chat about this movie. The movie, of course, is called Bromates. And by the time you hear this podcast, it's going to be in the theater and in even more screens the following week. You should definitely go out and catch it if you can. Court, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks so much, Ilya. And uh, thanks to anyone who goes out and sees it. Really appreciate it. All right, that was Court Crandall. Court, thank you for being on the show. I'm, I wish we had more time, and sorry that uh, that we didn't get to chat a little bit more, but I can't wait to uh, have you back on the show and chat some more about your next thing. Excellent. So, uh, Ilya, I hear tell that it's time to pay the bills. Last I checked, it is bill paying time. We got to thank our friends over at Aperture, makers of uh, fine lighting products for the motion picture and, and television industry. They have a new light called the Lightstorm 600C. And the 600C is very much like the X, but instead of just being bicolor, it actually adds all the colors of the rainbow. It is an RGB nice. WW light. And it's extra bright. It uses 600 watts. It's got a ballast. And yeah, it's a it's an impressive, impressive product. And uh, if you are already familiar with Aperture's chip on boards, COBS as they call them, they're uh, Bowen's mounts lights that have essentially a ton of power in a relatively compact size and for usually uh, pretty darn aggressive price points. They're very popular with uh, YouTubers and uh, growing into the professional uh, markets as well. So it's really something to uh, take a look at. If you have not seen an Aperture light before, go to Hot Ride Cameras. Hot Ride Cameras keeps them in stock and uh, we can be happy to demonstrate the LS600C Pro uh, or any of the other fine lighting products that Aperture makes. I, I just want to build on what you said. If you haven't seen an Aperture product before, uh, you haven't really been on too many sets because I see them on literally every set now. Yeah, they've, they've really grown. The last two years were probably the best two years in Aperture's history. And uh, just by the number of employees and amount of lights that are out there, uh, I can tell that they've really, really engorged themselves into the market. They're, they're really a, a different company now than they were a few years ago. They're killing it. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is our short end time of the show, uh, our obsession of the week, what we're really into, what's, you know, uh, making your, your skirt blow up, your socks go up and down. What are you into? Uh, socks go up and down? Yeah, I haven't heard that. I've never heard it. So let me ask you if you're aware of this. Uh, you know, the world is a buzz right now with Elon Musk being forced to probably see through his acquisition of Twitter for $40 billion, right? That's correct. So it's yes. somewhere in that neighborhood. So were you aware... 
that there's another massive multi-billion dollar acquisition going on kind of within our industry? No. What's that? It's a company called Figma. Big Figma fan, are you? I, I don't think I know what Figma is. It's a collaborative design application that can be used to do sort of illustrator kind of tasks. Uh, it can be used to, to uh, design interfaces for apps, do layout, all kinds of stuff like that. It's very accessible and it's been growing very fast. And Adobe is buying it for $20 billion. Holy crap. I don't even know what to say about that. Whoa. $20 billion. And I want to say that they bought Frame.io for like $2 billion. Yeah. And that was like head exploded. Like we just can't believe that this is happening. And Figma, which does stuff that Adobe already has programs that do it, do the same thing, is going for 10 times that for $20 billion. Wow. Figma with an uh, F. F-I-G-M-A. Figma. Correct. And I believe that that is like 15% of Adobe's overall evaluation currently. Whoa. So it's like <laughs> they're basically putting 15% of the value of their entire company on the line for this thing that, again, they have, depending on what you use Figma for, they have a bunch of different things that do the same thing. Now, Figma does it differently. Figma is uh, on kind of the current trend of having uh, an app that operates on the web. Mm. There's one called Runway. I'm actually surprised Adobe didn't buy them. Runway is like all web-based editing. You could edit on literally any internet-connected device on Earth with Runway, and it's a subscription model. So is Figma. And I believe they both have a free tier. Hmm. And I was watching a commentator on YouTube who was discussing this, and uh, he was saying that, you know, like Adobe might be forced to keep the free tier, which they basically did with Frame.io. So if you have an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription like I do, now you can just use Frame.io like I do, because Frame.io is awesome. Figma is not a software that I necessarily would personally see myself using. But obviously, Adobe is trying to, like anyone who uses Photoshop or Illustrator or InDesign or, you know, I don't know if Dreamweaver is still much of a thing. But like they have all these different suites of, of design things. And they do have a product that does virtually the same thing as Figma, just in a very different way. Hmm. Like, I don't I don't think that there's anything you could do on Figma that you can't currently do the, the equivalent of with Adobe products. But what Figma does have is it's very collaborative. So you and I could both be in Figma. We could both be tweaking a design at the same time. Hearing that, like imagining, uh, and again, like probably the closest thing I would come to this is Photoshop. Thinking about you and I trying to do a Photoshop session at the same time sounds like madness. Uh, mm. Video editing with someone else's hands being able to touch the friggin' thing sounds insane to me. Hmm. Well, yeah, Figma uh, didn't know it existed, didn't know this acquisition was going on, but that'll uh, that'll make a couple waves, uh, $20 billion. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder about, like, again, Runway. Like, I feel like Runway is poised to be uh, bought by somebody, you know, Apple or Sony or Blackmagic. Runway is an interesting product in that they have, like, a rotoscoping, I don't know what you would call it, mm -hmm. but basically rotoscoping. any Jamoke can like upload their footage in there and rotoscope anything out of it. it it's like better than Adobe After Effects' Rotobrush. It's kind of the same idea in that it's designed for someone who isn't going to sit there and finesse and finesse and finesse. And I've seen people use it left and right, and it's just incredibly good. And I'm like, somebody's going to buy this company. 
I don't know if they stick it out and just say, screw everyone, we're going to take over editing. But when I see this Figma acquisition, it's like, well, you know, I could see somebody buying a company like that, you know, and like I hadn't heard of Figma until this week. And then the explanations I've heard for why Adobe was buying it was basically like Figma is on such a growth curve that Adobe's just trying to scoop that growth curve and throw it at Adobe. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, could be. Some businesses, their entire model is based on acquiring new companies, and that's how they grow. They don't actually try to grow some of their products. They don't necessarily R&D that their whole business model is, hey, you've got something interesting over there. We want it. We're going to acquire you. I don't I mean, know that if is, Adobe's... That is kind of Adobe. No, I mean, like, well, they didn't create Photoshop. They certainly didn't create After Effects. And and even, like, within the Premiere world... Or Color. They, yeah, they, uh, yeah they, they bought a thing called SpeedGrade, and then mm-hmm. SpeedGrade was, like, a standalone app in the Adobe suite... And then they just said, fuck it and stuck it all into Premiere. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, it won't be boring. It'll be certainly interesting to see where this all goes and how it affects the daily life of, I'm sure, millions of users out there. For sure. So what is your short end this week? You're going to like this one, or maybe you're not. I don't know. I haven't uh, bounced this off of you. You have no idea what I'm about to say. But uh, my short end is Werewolf by Night. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> have you no, seen- I, 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 I have, yeah, I like it. You have it, it. It didn't need a werewolf to you, no, because I, I. It did not need a werewolf. Although mm-hmm. I will say this, I have, I have one complaint about Werewolf by Night, and that's mm-hmm. I wanted a more transformation. Mm, yes, like they, you, they did it more off camera. They saved some money that way. Yeah, yeah, and to me, it's like the reason that I watch any werewolf movie is to see how they do the transformation. I gotta say though, they do a pretty great job with their flashes and silhouettes and that sort of thing. I, I enjoyed it. I know that that probably felt like a letdown to you since you didn't get all the gory Slight. effects. Right. I mean, you know, it, I mean, like, I mean, obviously, it was the creative choice of the filmmakers, so you know, it wasn't. It's not like they ran out of money. It was a Marvel product. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel like occasionally uh, Marvel has a bit of a truncated budget for some of their yeah, Disney Plus content. Certainly Loki didn't feel like that, but this one d- definitely felt like it might be a little bit lower. I think She-Hulk feels like it was a little bit lower. So, you mm-hmm. know, I, I think that and, and I could be wrong. I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly how they do it, but certain things feel like. Oh, my God, they had all the money in the world. And then other things feel like, yeah, you know, they were doing it on a budget. But I got to say, I really liked Werewolf by Night. And I wish they would do more standalone specials just like this. Like it didn't need to have six episodes. It's a wonderful story that takes well, place. It's, it's in also 50- a, a, when you think about it, though, it's a backdoor pilot for man thing. Sure. Like, Sure. Like a uh, spoiler alert to anyone who's who hasn't seen it. But man thing plays into this, which is sort of Marvel's version of Swamp Thing, sort of. Kind of. And I feel like they might have been testing the waters to see how much people wanted a man thing series or something. You know what? I I feel like that's just sort of Marvel in general, though. And you can almost not do anything without possibly them cracking open a door to to something else. So, uh, hey, I'm still waiting on Loki season two, which I which which I'd love to have. But uh, what I love about Werewolf by Night is I love that they're getting away from just telling Marvel superhero stories. Marvel has. And DC is the same way. They have tons of great stories that aren't superhero at all. Like no one in Werewolf by Night puts on a weird spandex suit and fights crime ever. That's true. It never happens. <laughs> it certainly didn't happen in the in the episode they released or the standalone they released, which yeah. which I loved, which was uh, very tight and, and an hour long. Yeah, it wasn't and, even it wasn't even a movie. And you know what? Didn't need didn't need another frame. It was it yeah. it was it was a perfect length. It left me wanting more. Great and, cast and props to to Zoe White, who was the cinematographer. Nice. Uh, her her work was was wonderful. And I'm hesitant to even say this because if there's someone out there who doesn't want to watch something because it's black and white, 
Get over yourself. Get over yourself. Go hey, watch. The, I go just want to point out that there's copious amounts of red in this that's, show. That's true. There, there is a third color that's used here, and quite and, a bit of it. Yeah, quite. And a if bit. you're very patient and get to the very end, spoiler alert: There'll the last some scene is in color. Yeah. That's right. So, but the black and white work is wonderful, and it is a definite different art to shoot black and white than it is color. You have to you have to make some different plans. You should be monitoring black and white. There's different things you have to do. And Zoe White and her team did a wonderful job. So we should I, get I, Zoe on the show we haven't had her on before have we we, we haven't no we'll, we'll have to yeah. reach out we, if zoe if you're listening to this uh please hit us up we'd love to have you come talk about werewolf by night excellent so ben i think that just about does it this week where can people find you that they want to you find can you? find me at benrock.com go to benrock.com just the way it sounds b-e-n-r-o-c-k.com uh you can uh, check out my stuff uh check out my social media stuff uh, feel free to hit me up on uh, facebook twitter linkedin not so much uh, TikTok or uh, Snapchat or any of that. Uh, how about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, I think the same places they can find you, except not BenRock.com. You can find me over at HotRedCameras.com and, and most of the socials. No TikTok, no Snapchats. No. They, but the, actually, they could find you at BenRock.com because I do have a link to the cinematography podcast oh, look at that. on, on BenRock.com on the main menu bar. And and you can find a little bit about us over at CamNoir.com, too. And CamNoir has links in the show notes to uh, to us and our things. And so if you uh, were like, God, you know, there was that episode a while ago and they mentioned this thing. You'll find it in the show notes uh, over at Cam Noir, camnoir.com. You know what we should do on uh, the Jordan Harbinger show, which is a really great podcast if you haven't heard it. They do starter packs because he interviews a wide variety of people. And it's like, we could do a Marvel. We could do horror. We could do Oscar nominees. Like we could basically create little starter packs on Cam Noir where it's like, okay, if you want to listen to a bunch of people who did uh, Batman movies or whatever, like, you know, we have we have a few of them. It's a great idea. I think that we just got to figure out what our starter packs or what our things are. And we can give people a, essentially a playlist, a playlist of episodes to, to go. Exactly. That, yeah. That's that's all it is. And it's like if you're listening to the Jordan Harbinger show and you're like, I want to hear about persuasion. Like they'll he's got a bunch of people who talk about that, you know. All right. Cool. Well, I think that's something to investigate and maybe we'll get happening here in the near future. I know we have so many. I mean, at this point, how many people have we interviewed? Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. I, I couldn't tell you exactly, but it's, it's yeah. hundreds for sure. It's not a small number. No, not at all. And uh, and boy, just more and more uh, fun uh, people coming up. So uh, I'm excited. So yeah, me too. So, Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we uh, thank this week? Uh, we should thank uh, Alana Cody. Right before we started recording, we had a little meeting with Alana. We've got some great interviews coming up and we're moving into Oscar season. So we're going to start talking. Last year, we talked to three of the five Oscar nominees. Uh, I'm hoping we can beat that record this year. Yeah, I hope so, too. I think that uh, there's a there's a good shot of it, too. Wait, I think. And uh, who else would you like to thank? Let's thank uh, Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's uh, made all the music that you heard in this show. In fact, uh basically every show for the cinematography podcast Kays uh, now also a guest uh, go back and listen to the episode with Kays if you're curious about the man who made the music if you're, that uh, if you're Kays curious if you're Kays curious go ahead go and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep I think we're all a little Kays curious you know, a sometimes. little bit yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah right. so uh, and let's thank Ben Katz Ben Katz a uh, wonderful editor who uh, his life we made slightly harder this week but I think that he can make uh, heads or tails of it awesome All right, Ben, I think that just about does it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.